Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. It's very rare in life when you're incredibly excited about something, and that thing finally comes around, and it not only meets your expectations, it exceeds your expectations. I mean, I would say this week I would compare it to like the joy of having a great Christmas when you're a kid, where you... You think you're going to get a cool present and then all of a sudden, boom, you get that PlayStation or just something like out of this world amazing and you've been counting down the days with your little advent calendar, just crossing your fingers, hoping it's going to be a great day and there it comes, like the greatest day. Yep. This happened to me this week, Andrew, because (laughs) there's been a lot going on. You probably heard about the LA Sports Equinox, like 19 games simultaneously in LA and all this, but on my calendar circled for more than a week was Clippers Wizards. My first look up close and personal at your favorite team, the Washington Wizards. And look, I was kind of cracking my knuckles about this. I was getting super excited. Then they lose to the Kings a couple days ago. And I'm like, oh yeah, (laughs) now the momentum is really building. This could be an instant classic. I can't wait to see what these guys are capable of. I'm pouring over all the amazing quotes that are coming out from Candace Buckner and Fred Katz, you know, just documenting the inner turmoil of that locker room. I'm getting so excited. I'm getting so excited. Comes to game day. They throw me a curveball. We have an Austin Rivers tribute video at Staples Center (laughs) where like three quarters of the video is just him bleeding at various points of his Clippers tenure. So that really just like kicked it up a notch. But then the Wizards absolutely delivered, Andrew. It was one of the most pathetic performances I've seen in recent years. I don't want to say it's one of the most pathetic performances I've ever seen from the Wizards because you and I both know There's been a lot of pathetic performances over the last 10 years, but this one was way up there, and I was just downright giddy during the postgames when Bradley Beal blows off the reporters, uh, where John Wall kind of mumbles for two minutes about pride, where Austin (laughs) Rivers just ethers his entire new team and just randomly steps up for Coach Scott Brooks and basically saying he should still be employed. Brooks has this very dead-eye look, like he has no idea what other buttons to push, and they're only six games into the season. Andrew, this was a carnival, and I know you enjoyed it as much as I did. Oh, man. You know, you mentioned Austin Rivers. When he is the lone voice of sanity crying out in the wilderness, you know you're in a dark place. Um, I can confirm for listeners that Ben was very, very excited about this Wizards game and mentioned it several times last week. And each time you mentioned it to me, you were like, I I get to see your Wizards on Sunday. Who knows what's possible? (laughs) My reaction internally was like, man, like I know what's possible. They're going to lose by like 10 or 15 points. It's going to be wildly underwhelming and pretty boring. And you're going to regret ever going down to Staples Center. Nope. Little did I know (laughs) that we were going to be witnessing the full-on implosion of an entire era, really, because it did. It started with Friday against Sacramento, a game that I did not even watch. I got halfway through the first quarter and was like, you know what? This is not how I want to spend my night because best case scenario, the Wizards were going to beat the Kings and it was going to be meaningless. 
worst case scenario, they were going to lose to the goddamn Kings and it was going to ruin my entire night and maybe the better part of my weekend. So I went and did something else with my Friday night and was happier for it. And I didn't even have the heart to read their quotes afterwards. No, I know. Then, it's like, it's not even Halloween yet. And you've already reverted to like self-care. You're like, oh, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I've got to distance myself from this group. <laughs> I, I can't invest too much emotionally. We're six games into the season, Andrew. Well, do you remember last year? Because this also happened last season where we got like two or three weeks into the season and had to institute a no talking about the wizards until christmas rule on open floor and i think we're gonna have to do that again uh after today's episode but we should talk about wiz clippers because you were there you were in the at the locker room afterward so we'll start with a question we got several wiz fans who wrote in at like 1 a.m last night we got Um, a lot it was a flood (laughs) andrew they came out of the woodwork they're ready to fire everybody and trade everybody they're angry yeah well i certainly identify um alex wrote in his subject line was ah (laughs) and then all caps in the body he said we gave up 136 points to Tobias Harris and Patrick Beverly. I know it's early, but is it time to blow it up and start dreaming about Zion Williamson? So Ben, I want to kick this to you because I'm I'm looking forward to an objective observer's opinion on the Wizards because I, sometimes people think I get too down on them, whatever. But what do you think after watching them in person? Look, I'm glad to take this ball and run with it. But first, I think you should maybe make some movie recommendations to Alex because it doesn't sound like from the scream of his email that he's necessarily practicing the self-care. So if Alex happens to watch a Wizards game here in the next week or two, and maybe they give up, I don't know, 150 to Orlando or something like that. What should Alex do to sort of guard his heart, Andrew? I think you need to go fan-to-fan advice here. Oh, man. I watched um, the first two episodes of The Romanovs, which is the new Matthew <laughs> Weiner show on Amazon Prime. It was pretty good. I mean, it's a little odd, but it's uh, it's pretty funny. I enjoyed it. So that's an option. I also recently watched the movie Wind River, which is on Netflix. Um, it's with Jeremy Renner. I would give it like a B, maybe B minus. But look, if you're looking to kill two hours and not watch The Wizards, that's an option as well. Wait, um, what's, what's Wind River about? Um, it's about a like uh, murder in rural wyoming and um (laughs) i'm sensing a theme here what you're trying to do is run as far away as possible from the wizards you want to go back in time like 500 years and you want to go to the most remote state where i think (laughs) i believe it's a true fact that there's more cows than people in wyoming that sounds like the kind of thing you would use as like a cheap punchline but i'm pretty sure that's actually true yeah that's very telling, Andrew. Uh, anyway, on this idea of like, do they blow it up? Do they tank? And trying to be objective here. These guys are just sick of each other. It's not that complicated. The players have very little chemistry. They were completely neglecting Otto Porter. I wanted to go out there on the court and give the man a hug because before the game, he goes out there. He's standing around by himself. Nobody's even looking at him. He's like talking to the referee 
and to Marcin Gortat because he's got nobody else to really talk to or interact with. And then he winds up just playing like it. He's just jogging up and down the court, two for eight or whatever he was to start the game, you know, barely involved, you know, just sort of like half-heartedly walking through their offensive plays. And it's just there's a very little collective trust, uh, very little, you know, energy to help each other. And I think that's what really stood out to me because you had this great Yogi Berra-ism a few years mm-hmm. ago where you were like, if you want to see good defense, watch a bad defense and then just realize what's not there. <laughs> and totally. that's that's where the Wizards are right now, man. 136 points to the Clippers. And look, I have told you this. The Clippers are good, wholesome, family fun. They play hard. They have very little ego. They will come at you. They should not put up 136 points on you that easily. And the main thing that's missing, to me anyways, it's like uh-huh. the multiple effort plays, the second effort plays where it's like, okay, I'm going to like lazily go out and contest this shot. Once the guy drives by me, I'm not even going to bother trying to recover. I'm just going to wave at him. And I'm definitely not going to go and, and contest and fight for a rebound. I mean, they just base all the guards are just letting the bigs do all of the rebounding. That's not going very well. And then defensively, there's very little help. So if you drive to the basket, you're likely going to finish or get fouled. Their defensive rebounding numbers are atrocious. I do think uh, Dwight Howard's going to help there a little bit. Yeah. But they're just a mess everywhere. And look, I would hang my head and not be excited about playing for this team if I had to live day in and day out John Wall's shot selection. And this guy continues to carry himself like he's a top three, top four, top five point guard. He's playing like a below average starting point guard in my eyes because he is not uh, empowering his teammates at all. He's playing very entitled with the basketball and he just takes basically chucks up any shot that he wants. And then in his postgame comments, uh, you know, he talks about, oh, these guys have to sacrifice. I don't want to talk about Otto Porter's shots. Talk about your own shots, John. Yeah, uh, I mean, there are a lot of good points there. I think the operative point is this team is just a mess everywhere. I believe you said that. I think that's a direct quote, and it's very true. Um, For me, it is, I joke about ignoring them, but it is just really hard to watch them right now because they can't go two minutes without making a mistake that reminds me why the entire era has been a failure. And so whether it's a defensive breakdown or a bad shot from Wall, it's just really frustrating to watch them right now. And um, I think your your point on effort is, is well taken also because they have the vibe of a team that is in like month seven of the season like this is a a team that looks like it's early april and they're just beaten down and exhausted and looking to get to the finish line (laughs) and it's not even halloween but like you watch them sometimes and just nobody makes the extra pass or or boxes out on a on a rebound Uh, like they're just Anything above the bare minimum on both ends is too much for this Wizards team right now. And it's really tough. Wall is the central issue. It is really strange to me how Otto Porter has sort of become the scapegoat that everyone is looking to. I mean, Scott Brooks mentioned him by name on Friday night after the Kings loss. And then John and Bradley Beal keep talking in the media making allusions to players who care about shots like Otto Porter isn't crazy for wanting more than five looks a game from those guys um and somehow he's been turned into like the problem in DC where like if we were being completely honest 
and looking at that roster, I think Otto and Beal are the only two players on the entire team who you could ever really imagine being part of a championship team. Um, so that's not great. That's a problem. And it, and as far as the like blow it up question, look, we've been in blow it up mode for the last six months. I think anybody who wants to talk honestly about where this team is and what the ceiling is going forward, you have to admit that like this is probably not going to work. And um, and it was reasonable to maybe run it back this year one more time to see if like an off season could kind of change things and have everyone come back refreshed. Clearly, we're two weeks in, and that hasn't happened. My only worry is that they're going to turn around and panic trade Otto or potentially Bradley Beal when it's clear that John Wall is the guy that is the problem and has to move. Yeah, a couple thoughts. First, you mentioned making the extra pass. How about just a pass? Like, we don't even need the extra pass. (laughs) There's so little ball movement. It's just, you know, very stale offensively. In terms of the auto question, here's one theory I have. I agree. He's being scapegoated way more than he should be. And I think part of the reason why is he's like the highest profile player on the roster that Scott Brooks is actually willing to criticize. Like, I don't think he feels comfortable enough to go after Beal or Wall in any meaningful way anymore. And so somehow that just, you know, wound up sliding down to to Autumn and Otto when I feel bad for him. I also wonder though, is there a benefit to be found for the whole organization for trading Otto just basically on the premise that it will be a wake up call to Wall and Beal and they will maybe realize like, look, we can't just blame everything on this guy anymore. I mean, he sort of assumed the Marcin Gortat role where like everybody's blaming him for everything. <laughs> totally. If you move him out and then maybe that says, look, guys, you need to take more pride and accountability defensively as well. I looked at both those guys last night, Wall and Beal, as being huge parts of the problem. And I think in their vision, they get to take all the shots and everybody else has to play defense. And that's sort of how the team should run. That's mm-hmm. not healthy for anyone. That's not going to win you games. That's not going to get you into the conference finals, which is where this team should be headed based on their talent, right? So is there a, you know, you mentioned avoiding a panic trade. Is there like a secondary benefit of you part with Otto and maybe it shakes Wall and Beal from some of their bad habits and it gets them to really lock in more night to night and realize that they're part of the problem rather than just blaming some of these guys who are lower on the totem pole? Oh, man, all of this stuff is so depressing to talk about and think about. But here's the problem with that. I think what you're describing could happen if John and Brad ever looked at Otto as if he were part of like a real big three. But they've already kind of thought of him as a secondary piece. And so it wouldn't be like shaking up the core in their eyes. It would be... Like if if you told them they traded Otto, they were like, "Good, we need a we need a third star." And um and look, I, it's entirely possible they could try to turn around and trade Otto to the Wolves and and bring back Jimmy Butler as like a real last ditch, let's get crazy move. <laughs> and God knows what the season would turn into in that scenario. Well, um, uh, on that point though, we're in for the drama heads, you know, the soap opera heads of the NBA. 
if Butler gets traded to Houston or Washington, we're getting fireworks either way. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I mean, and again, all of this is happening before Dwight has even taken the floor in Washington. So it's funny. I'm honestly a little bit, uh, I don't know. I think I would have expected to be having more fun with this, but part of me is just kind of tired of like all of the Wizards bullshit and would love to to get us closer to like a resolution, but I don't think it's even possible for them to trade Wall this year. So we're on this ride for at least the next six or seven months. To be honest, you sound hurt. I don't think they can (laughs) trade Wall this season, and I don't think that they should trade Beal. Exactly. I think he's, he's the most valuable asset. So again, that makes me lean more into the camp of trading Otto. And to me, I, I view myself as like a top 10% Otto Porter fan club member. Like yep. he's not my favorite player of the world, but I think he's very helpful, very valuable. And as soon as he gets traded to a smart organization, he's going to wind up having better numbers, number one. But also his his uh, overall reputation is really going to uh, you know improve in a big time way. But I, I do now view them as almost needing to make that move because they don't have any other real trade ships that they can play. And I don't think that they can go forward with this same group and expect anything good to happen in the postseason. I guess what I'm saying is I've seen enough this year to bring their ceiling down considerably where I'm no longer in this, like, let's protect the big three at all cost mode, which I might've been in even 12 months ago when they were struggling, right? It was like, okay, well, just try to keep it and make these things work and see once everybody's healthy. And that was reasonable 12 months ago, but now we've seen what's possible and it doesn't look great, you know? And so I am with you 100%. Otto's not a perfect player and he's probably making too much money, but he can definitely go somewhere where he's more appreciated and his role makes a little bit more sense and be really solid. And like we had... Sixers fans writing in about Otto's availability. We had a Jazz fan write in with the same question. The Jazz were going to try to sign him two summers ago. And, I mean, every good team should be interested because I think he could be really valuable in the right situation. Um, But as far as D.C., one other change that we didn't talk about, Luca asks, after last year's playoff debacle, why was Scott Brooks not fired? Why has Sharp not insisted on this more often? Why does he still regard Brooks as an average NBA coach? So in reverse order, why do I refer to Scott Brooks as an average NBA coach? Mostly because I'm just a nice person. And on the last podcast, I didn't want to be too mean to Billy Donovan and Scott Brooks. I think that they're both like firmly in the bottom 10 I don't think either one of them are are like the worst coach in the league, but um, not great. The reason I haven't insisted on firing Brooks Moore or talking about his role in all this is because the problem is bigger than one coach, you know. And I think that the the management, you look at the roster that Scott Brooks has to work with, and like when Markeith went down last night. They were running in Jeff Green as a five, Jan Mahinmi. I think they played the rookie. Was it Thomas Bryant was in there? I don't know. It was it was a complete mess. Um, and his hands are tied. And the, it, like the the incompetence is more holistic than just Scott Brooks. It's every level of the organization has failed in some respect. And so I think locally in D.C., a lot of people are like fire Scott Brooks and like. 
that may be a start. It's probably going to happen if, if they're looking to change things up here, but there's so many more kind of structural issues that need to change. Yeah, and I think a lot of those structural issues start with Wall motivating yeah. him, getting him to play hard consistently, and getting him to play with a team concept. I mean, he's the one who keeps saying, we don't need to worry about shots and assists and steals, and it really seems like he cares a lot about <laughs> totally. those things. And it, it's similar to the Donovan situation that I mentioned last week, where Wall is completely empowered. He is making so much more money than everybody else in the organization. They've they've kind of you know tied their future to him. Uh, he probably realizes he's awful hard to trade, and I don't think he's accountable to anyone but himself. And unfortunately, I don't think he's holding himself to a high enough standard. And I don't think if you change the coach, that's going to change Wall's approach, is it? I mean, what coach is going to pull, you know, a, a more thoughtful and more, uh, you know, team-oriented uh, approach from John Wall at this point? Yeah, I, I think that's a good open question. I, to me, watching Wall, and it's funny, you can tell who's actually watched Wizards games versus who's kind of checking in for five or ten minutes at a time and looking at the stats in terms of like national voices. Because if you watch a, an entire Wizards game, you can see that Wall is, is a pretty big issue. And he kind of has the vibe of like, post-injury Derrick Rose right now where he sort of looks like the same guy but it's just not quite there and he's forcing things and it's really hard to watch sometimes and so that's not encouraging um one example on those lines just to interject real quick the Clippers game Wall has a couple of times where he just dashes end to end slices through the defense and gets like the quick twos and you're like wow it's the old John Wall the fastest player in the NBA yeah but he's often doing that while they're giving up threes wide open on the (laughs) other end and it's like you're losing this trade every time you know if you're not ever going to get a stop if you're never going to uh you know get your defense like locked in and playing on a string it doesn't matter how many times you cut through the paint and, and you know blow by some backup Clippers guard come on man yeah, you know, it's very funny because, again, the local media in D.C. can sometimes be a little bit too positive um, with local athletes and particularly with the Wizards. And so there was one sequence last night where Wall saved a ball that was going out of bounds and he and Wall like dove into the second row at Staples Center courtside. And it was a really cool like hustle play but he saved it right to Avery Bradley, who then went straight to the rim and threw an alley-oop to, I believe, Tobias Harris for an easy dunk. And so coming out of that play, the announcers were like, there's John Wall willing to put his body on the line for the team. It's been like that every year in D.C. And then somebody posted a clip on Twitter. It was like, hashtag Wallway. And I'm like... What are you talking about? He saved it right to Avery Bradley. Are you people insane? And that's so that's sort of the disconnect that can be kind of frustrating sometimes. But I'm glad, look, anyone who's listened to the podcast has known that I've had some misgivings with the current state of the Wizards. I'm glad we could just be upfront and honest about this now because I was trying to put on a brave face coming out of that Blazers win. I was feeling mildly optimistic because it's like the Kings, the Clippers, they've got a game against the Grizzlies. All of those are winnable games. It's not like the West Coast road trip was was that murderous. 
But here we are now, and we could just kind of know what the Wizards are and not really have to pay too much attention to them going forward. I think that's healthy. Yeah, that play that you're describing was fake hustle, and it was low IQ. I mean, on both of them. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, just lock in and guard your man for the minutes you're on the court. And you don't have to jump over 14 rows of celebrities to save a basketball <laughs> and, like, immediately, like, lead to a you know, basically an alley-oop on the other end, you know, scoring the basket in it's your own hoop. It's killing me. <laughs> it's really tough. Just, um, just get down in your position. Fight over screens and work hard. It's not that difficult. But hey, I'm glad that the Wizards experience lived up to your expectations because I really was, I was thinking about you going down there on a Sunday night and I was like, I don't know why he's doing that. But um, lo and no, behold. He, Austin Rivers really made the whole night because in his post-game press conference, he was surrounded by a lot of LA media, like welcoming him back. So he was alternating between like waxing nostalgic about how great LA <laughs> is and like you just don't understand the power of good weather and consistency it just puts you in this great mood like he's going on and on about how amazing los angeles is and then he's immediately shifting into just crushing the wizards our defense is horrendous <laughs> teams are just walking in for layups we're not the warriors we've got to have some personal pride like he was just lighting up his team and then like meanwhile like guys like kelly Oubre are like getting dressed like near him kind of like listening in like who is this guy like austin rivers totally. like, is, <laughs> is he running for president like what's he doing right now he's like on a campaign stump speech you know it was just great yeah that that was the best. You posted a couple videos of him on Twitter, and I loved seeing Ubre lurking in the background, wondering what's going through his head during all those Austin Rivers quotes. Um, and yeah, he's he's thinking he's going to be the starting forward as soon as they uh, as soon as they move Otto. That's what he's thinking, you know. And Ubre's another guy they should be looking to trade because I I don't know if you really want to pay Ubre this summer. But um, credit to the Wizards on a more general level, it takes a lot to make someone nostalgic for those old Clippers locker rooms, but apparently they did that successfully with Austin Rivers. No question. I mean, the end, he was like, you know, people are laughing at us. And the way he said that, it was coming from such a place of personal knowledge, like being on those Clippers teams <laughs> and like just being the butt end of jokes for years and years. Like if there's anything Austin Rivers is an expert about, it's being laughed at in the NBA, right? I mean, we can agree. I actually think he's a pretty good player. I thought it was yeah. a really smart trade they made for him. But, like, he's been stuck in that role for years, right? Like, as soon as they tweet out, oh, yeah, here's our tribute video for Austin, of course the internet's all laughing at him, even though he probably did deserve it based on his, you know, contributions to those Clippers teams. Uh, but when he said that, I was like, well, if any Wizards players in this locker room, like, aren't familiar with this feeling of being laughed at constantly, <laughs> they should listen to Austin because he knows. Well, yeah, Austin, I think his advantage might be self-awareness. The Wizards have been laughed at pretty constantly for the last three or four years, but no one in Washington seems to realize that. Um, but anyways, there we go. There's 25 minutes on the Wizards, and now I think we're done with the Wiz until Christmas. We're reinstituting the no Wizards talk until Christmas rule. Let's move on now from the bottom of the league to the top of the world, the Milwaukee Bucks. Your Milwaukee Bucks, our Milwaukee Bucks. Ethan says, is Coach Bud's system really that good, or was Jason Kidd really that bad? And a second question is Chris Middleton and Giannis Adetokounmpo the second best duo in the NBA behind Katie and Steph? 
What do you think, Ben? I mean, are we sure they're second behind the Warriors? <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm an open playing. question. <laughs> I'm just playing, but Milwaukee has been absolutely fascinating. They're going into tonight against Toronto um, with a shot at their first seven-game winning streak since 2002, which is uh-huh. just incredible. Uh, they don't have Giannis, so like, who knows with that game. That that was unfortunate. He, he got into the concussion protocol, but... Milwaukee, they're hard to analyze because unlike the Wizards who are doing everything wrong, Milwaukee is basically doing everything we want them to have done, right? And they're actually able to win games now when Giannis isn't playing at his A+, which tells you a lot about how much value Bud's system brings to the table. Like last year and in previous years, if Giannis was like a B- minus or below, that's just a flat loss, right? Like, if he's just not getting in the basket, if he has a bad matchup, whatever it might be, they're almost guaranteed to lose that game. Yeah. Now they've got these, like, second and third level, you know, contributors, and they're getting consistent quality catch-and-shoot three-pointers from all over the court, from all sorts of different people. Giannis has been just an absolute battering ram, and he's got so much room to work. I mean, he's finishing around the basket almost like an Anthony Davis where like his length is having the similar effect where you know even if he misses the layup he's just able to use his wingspan to play above defenders get the offensive rebound and dunk it over them I mean it's almost like you know Greek Boban in a way like totally Anthony, Anthony Davis Boban and Giannis are just having a field day in this spread NBA I'll say that that uh, is the- exactly how it looks watching Giannis down low where he just has like an extra 20% of length where it it really does look freakish. And you're like, how is this possible? It sometimes doesn't even look like he's jumping to get these looks, but he just, wherever he is within 10 feet of the rim, he's getting a clean look that wouldn't be possible for anyone else on the planet except Boban and Anthony Davis. It's pretty incredible. Then you've got a guy like Brooke Lopez stepping in, one trick poning his way to a great season. You know, just totally stretch five, shoot the threes all day long, nice and easy, wide open looks. And then Middleton's been really strong. And, you know, obviously I, I tend to go overboard praising him, but he's been deserving it here for the first couple weeks. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because Coach Bud was already great at over overachieving with a bunch of above average players who weren't necessarily real superstars. I mean, I, there was that one year where I think five Hawks made the All-Star game, which it was an accomplishment, but also was sort of like a damning blight on the Eastern Conference and the, and the state of the East for the last 10 years. Yeah, what you're saying is when Bud is equipped with a Giannis instead of Jeff Teague as his lead ball handler, surprise, surprise, (laughs) things look amazing. That's exactly what I'm saying. Giving Coach Bud an honest-to-God MVP candidate takes all of this to a totally different place, you know? And it's like, honestly, I don't even know how crazy this can get in Milwaukee because, you know— like there's a real possibility they could go win 60 games this year. Um, and Whoa. It, I Whoa. mean, they're, they're just really, really good night to night. And if you're asking me about Middleton and Giannis, like, I don't know if I'm ready to put them above Chris Paul and James Harden after two weeks, but like check back in six weeks. And it's not impossible because Giannis is that good. And Middleton is a perfect compliment to him. 
nothing makes me happier than when you stand out for the Bucks harder than I do, because uh, <laughs> that's not easy to do. And then we get into this like competitive thing of like who could say more rec. Like, do I have to come back right now and be like they're going to win sixty five? And you're like, <laughs> like I was over here ready to say they're definitely going to win fifty. We've been saying for three years they were going to break through. They're finally going to get fifty this year. And then you come out of left field with sixty. Um, I guess go to your head home court team in the east this year you think they can hold on for that i just predicted they'd win 60 games <laughs> they're definitely no, gonna have i mean you court. said it was you said it was possible you know yeah. you were hedging a little bit but i, I think for sure they're going to be a top four seed i don't yes. i don't see any way that goes sideways and so at that point they should win their first round series and then things could get really really interesting like I always book out my hotels for the finals month in advance so i've already got hotels in like philly toronto boston would it be like absolutely crazy for me to book some hotels in milwaukee in june would that be (laughs) would that be nuts andrew i mean would it be crazy would it i was wondering whether you were gonna go there because for people listening during every bucks game this season ben has well not every bucks game but at least four times this season you have texted me during a bucks game saying the bucks are going to the finals and to (laughs) me i think that's crazy i think that they have a chance to be an awesome regular season team that is still like a a level below toronto and boston it once you get to may but uh I, i beyond that they're better than philly though who if you had to say one would make the finals philly or milwaukee who would you pick i would definitely pick milwaukee and and part of it by the way it's not it's not strictly coach bud being an mvp level coach i think he's a really good coach i think he's clearly a top 10 coach you could make an argument that he's a top five coach um and jason kidd was really that bad And, and a lot of his system on both ends did not make much sense um But I also think we have to remember how much it helps to have a healthy Malcolm Brogdon there this season. And you have Ilyasova and Brooke Lopez kind of helping fill out the rotation. And really, when you've got players as good as Giannis and Middleton, to a lesser extent, at the top of the roster, um, for the same reason it helped Philly to add Bellinelli and, and Ilyasova down the stretch last year, like adding one or two solid players to fill things out can go a long way. And I think some of that is what's happening in Milwaukee as well, where like the the team is more solid across the board than it was a year ago. And then at the same time, they're taking much smarter shots and just everything makes a lot more sense than it has for several years in Milwaukee. Yeah, one thing I think about the Bucks, it feels like they are now kind of a case study for like the inarguability of the strength of shooting and just like the four out five out approach, because there was a couple years there where people wanted to push back and say, Oh shoot, you know, shooting. I don't really trust it. Unless you're like the warriors, like how valuable could it really be? People overemphasize spacing. Like there was sort of that like crotchety, like, you know, kind of more traditional crowd where like, Oh guys like Ilya Silva or Kyle Korver, like they're just overrated. All they could do is shoot. Like you're seeing now, I think like, the third or fourth wave of teams who have embraced like, you know, this same very simple philosophy. And when you take a team that just absolutely did not in Milwaukee, the last couple of years, and then just overhaul it with a lot of the same pieces, but a couple of small additions around the edges and you get this type of turnaround. It's like, okay, here's like the indisputable case study where if you play the right way, you will get results. And I'm going to call out an unnamed, 
uh, national writer. I'm going to say, look, and I know he listens to this. He, in my direct messages, he made a very outlandish, very open floor globe style of take, which was this. The Bucks hiring Coach Bud has more impact on the NBA this season uh, in terms of who's going to win the title or potentially win the title than LeBron joining the Lakers. And he's afraid to put it out there on Twitter because he doesn't want to get harassed by the Lakers fans. <laughs> that is an absolute scorcher. But is do it you though? Agree? Hold on. Is do it you really, agree? If, if we're talking wins and losses in this year's NBA, I think it's inarguable that Bud is going to make a bigger difference in Milwaukee than LeBron will in LA. Wow. Because listen look, if, if, to you. <laughs> so like, See, if unnamed if, writer Andrew's got bigger <laughs> stones. No, here's the deal. If LeBron and I wouldn't write this take because it does come off as a little bit thirsty for attention and retweets and whatnot. Um, But if LeBron hadn't gone to LA, they would have brought back Julius Randle and that nucleus probably wins 40, 42 games. LeBron's now in LA instead and brought this merry band of cast-offs with him. And uh, I think, you know, realistically, they're probably going to win 45, 46 games, maybe 48 if you're feeling ambitious. So contrast that with Milwaukee. I mean, come on. The Bucks are going to win like 55 games. I, 55 doesn't seem like a crazy prediction to me. And uh, I mean, certainly in the East, I think Bud... Well, actually, Kawhi was a pretty big addition as well, but it's not a crazy conversation to have. Yeah, this was the conversation we were having. Like, Kawhi, I think, has to be viewed number one just because Toronto's got the easier path, right? If they make the finals, that's, like, slam dunk. Right. Uh, But then it was, like, two and three. Was it Bud or LeBron? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough call. Just out of curiosity, before we move on, where would you put the Middleton-Giannis duo as far as duos are concerned? Look, Andrew, you know I take these rankings seriously, so <laughs> I'd have to really <laughs> sit down and study it. But uh, I think for this season only, and I think there's reason to be skeptical about Middleton kind of going forward, right? Uh, uh-huh. Because he has played really, really well here for the last couple of seasons, but... You know, you do wonder, okay, different system, not playing with Giannis, what do his numbers look like? But um, I think the problem with the duo question is, like, Golden State, I could make a case that they have, like, the three best duos in the league, like or four best. You could go Steph and KD, Steph and Draymond, KD and Draymond, Steph and Clay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that, that part makes it tricky. Well, that actually uh, is very funny because if you did Steph and Draymond and then KD and Clay. Those would be the top two duos. I'm not going to start mixing mixing and matching Katie and Steph with all these different versions, but like you can come up with solidly two duos from that Golden State core, both of which are better than anything else the league can can come back with. I think the only other one, I mean, based on early season performance, like Kawhi and Lowry is probably yeah. up there. Uh, I think like you're saying, Harden and Paul will be up there based on the respect factor. I think I think I would rather have Giannis and Middleton over Westbrook and and Paul George, uh, right. and I would make that decision pretty easily. I'm not even going to mention Wall and Beal at this point. Uh, <laughs> I mean Simmons and Embiid should be high up in this conversation, at least in theory. We haven't quite seen it so far this season, but I think you know in theory, you know they've got to be in this like top five mix. 
but maybe this should be like you know a full-fledged like you know top 100 type exercise where we go through and rank the duos yeah uh yeah we can get into that in a month or two um rest in peace to the best backcourt in the league <laughs> remember when the wizards came out and said that because they play both ways unlike the warriors no, I that was everyone was tweeting that like best two way point guard was, <laughs> <laughs> as Wall was getting lit up for however many points was it fifty one by oh, stuff? I mean, man. come on, this has been my life for the last four years. I'm glad other people are starting to realize what I've been dealing with. Andrew says, "Hey guys, really enjoyed this Mike Prada piece about Luka Doncic's." hidden athleticism it's got me convinced but do you guys buy it can you think of any other examples of guys who are dinged for not being athletic but are maybe super athletic just in less easily identifiable ways did you read the Prada piece I thought it was pretty good I did it was really good you should summarize it yeah it was a really important point that he's making which is essentially boiled down to this one excerpt that I that copied for us he says Doncic is dazzling Mavericks fans early in his NBA career, but how can someone this unathletic be so successful? Maybe it's because he's been able to overcome his athleticism, or maybe it's because we actually define athleticism in an incredibly narrow way. And then Prada goes on to detail the way Luka's body control at the end of his drives and his ability to create space with his final step, uh, which he calls, I think, the last step, uh, sets him apart from most other wings in the league. And I, I think it's perceptive because Luca is great at sort of creating creating room to, to thrive despite his limits. Yeah, I think the real problem here is the catch-all phrase of athleticism right because I think what he is trying to argue is that it's too narrow because it's only you know basically being applied to something like a first step like quickness right yeah but I also think that we get into you know trouble as analysts by just defaulting to that word athleticism to basically describe almost anything on the basketball court whether it's you know, a product of somebody's length or their sheer speed or their strength. I mean, athleticism just really gets thrown out a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, like, his point with Doncic's last step where it's body control, whether it's getting his body squared to the hoop so he can have these, like, kind of contorting finishes, but actually have them be pretty high percentage shots because he's almost, like, kind of slows down in a very James Harden way before he shoots where, you know, he kind of lets the defender go past him. Uh, you know, sometimes he's powering through people and then, you know, changing his shot angles to, again, kind of create space for himself. Do you view that as an athletic trait or is it almost like an IQ trait? You know, like he's he's outfoxing his defender as opposed to sort of like blowing by them or almost where where would you describe that? Because I don't necessarily view the things that he was complimenting Doncic for as examples of what I usually refer to as athleticism. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely not what we traditionally refer to as athleticism, but to me, it is athleticism. But it's also, I mean, it's a distinction without a real difference um, at some point. But I, like, I think it's a valuable point because there are a number of guys who we think of as average athletes who actually have supernatural body control or balance or footwork or spatial instincts and and you look at someone like Steve Nash 
he was an amazing athlete, just not in like the Russell Westbrook kind of way. And you could make the same point about James Harden and Steph Curry. And I would even put Kyrie Irving in that category where he kind of looks like an average athlete by some traditional measures, but then in a couple categories, he's just incredible. And like the way he's able to contort his body around the rim is off the charts. And, and that, there's some of that with Doncic. What I would push back on is the the question with Doncic is whether he's going to be able to get himself to average in all the traditional categories because like Harden and Curry may not be eye-popping Russell Westbrook athletes, but they're firmly average at worst. Um, and same with Steve Nash and same with Kyrie. And Doncic right now is not even average. I think he's just straight up slow. He wears down as games unfold, and he struggles to beat people off the dribble in the half court. And so that's still an open question, but uh, he's definitely great at a couple things that people might not have noticed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another takeaway is we don't want to overcorrect here and say, oh, actually, well, actually, Luka is athletic. (laughs) Because... Luca with the first step would be a lot more devastating. Like, let's not lose track of that. Like, Luca without a first step, uh, where he's at right now in his game, yeah. is a very effective and very, very fun and very, very savvy and very impressive rookie, right? But if you gave him the benefit of actually having a really above average first step, you know, if you if you kind of solve that problem that a lot of his critics, including yourself, have kind of harped on in the past, yeah. He would be a lot better. <laughs> There's no question about it. Because uh, he, he, he would have every other advantage to, to kind of deploy all of his tricks with even more space. And there's often when I'm watching him, he gets himself into situations and he often pulls himself out of them. But, you know, he commits turnovers regularly because he's not used to the quickness of NBA defenders, right? He's not getting to spots. He's not able to turn the corner in situations where he thought he would be able to. And that's part of the adjustment process. I expect, you know, those kinds of things to kind of iron out a little bit in terms of his decision making as he goes forward. But I, I also think like a little bit more athleticism for him wouldn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like if he can make some marginal gains in the more traditional categories, he'll be in really good shape. I I, I mean, bottom line with Luca though, I think it's all gonna come down to the jumper. If he can get to like the low forties from three he's going to be very, very solid. I don't think he's ever going to be an all-NBA level player, but uh, he'll help Dallas a ton if he can be a real threat as an outside shooter. And like you see Mavs games, he can put stretches together for a couple minutes or, or a quarter at a time where he is like a great offensive player, and then he kind of fades. And I think that some of that might just be conditioning, uh, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and I'm with his shot. Like, that step back that he's already got, how many rookies come in with that shot, right? Exactly. Like, I remember Damian Lillard had that shot pretty early in his career, probably his rookie year. I'd have to go back at the memory bank to to remember how well he had that honed early. That's a really tough shot, and there's not a lot of guys who have the strength and the coordination and the kind of the timing and, and the smooth stroke to release that. Um, and so that's one major reason why I have faith in his shot. Like if if you're saying that's going to be an X factor, I think he's going to have that going forward. Yeah. Um, I agree. Even speaking as a Dodgers hater or Dodgers skeptic, every time I watch him, I'm like, all right, like you got something here. There's no question. Um, but, uh, still kind of looks like a seven 11 employee sometimes. Jake says, 
if the Lakers struggle and conclude that Luke Walton isn't the right coach, do you think they'd ever look at Ty Lue as the right fit culturally and systematically for this group? Um, I, I don't even Whoa. know if we... <laughs> I Andrew, did you did you pick this question? Are you just trying to get a reaction out of me? What's going on? No, here? Come listen, on, man. man. We're just rounding third base here, nearing the end of the podcast, and we do need to talk about Ty Lue, uh, which was one of the breaking news stories over the weekend. I don't think we need to address the Lakers aspect of this question. I think Luke is set at least through February. What do you think? Um, I think he's doing fine. I mean, I think their their record is not where they want it to be. Yeah. But in terms of their style of play, having an identity, they definitely have that. And if you're looking at some of their role players who we, we came in the season with as question marks, JaVale McGee, Lance Stevenson, to me, those guys are both overachieving. I think Lonzo, Lonzo's been solid so far. Um, and given the, you know, the incident with the suspensions and all of that, like I think their record is understandable yeah and i do think they've had a tough schedule it could have been worse in terms of where they're at right now uh, but i don't feel like luke is losing any of the major strategic questions and there's been a couple of times so far this season where i've been really impressed with what he's done i mean first of all making the the josh hart move quickly was the right thing to do you know having the gall to go tell rondo he's not going to be a starter that's you know easier said than done so that was an impressive decision by their coaching staff yeah and then also when they play denver you know they're in their one quality win of the season they rip off a 9-2 run when he goes without a center and goes small against jokic who as we've described is going to be an all-star center this year for denver and has been unbelievable all season long all of those moves were were really you know smart coaching and, and kind of basically he's nailing them right there's not a lot to really nitpick with with uh luke so far well um, there have been some questionable choices as far as his rotations and it remains to be seen how he'll do making permanent changes to those rotations um but he's been fine and if well you just wanted him to start all the young guys off the top and i mean i think he was trying to show a little yeah little favoritism towards the towards the vets right make the young guys earn it a little bit and that is something that it's again it's easier for outsiders to say look don't play freaking Cantavius caldwell pope right but <laughs> uh, w- when you're going to that locker room you want to make sure everybody's engaged you want them to feel like they had a shot and they, and they just weren't able it to is, do it, it as opposed like to never having a shot 95 percent a Cantavius caldwell pope issue for me uh but luke is doing fine and it does seem it seems like genie and magic and palinka all support him and i think that lebron is coming into LA knowing that he has a reputation as a coach killer and is going to go out of his way to not do that unless things get really, really bad um, in Los Angeles. And we're not there yet. So on the other side of the country, Cleveland fired Ty Lue after five games, um, which is pretty shocking to me. Given, yeah, make the, can what, you make the case for me for this? What? Like, what? Why would they do this? If you're Dan Gilbert and you're Kobe Altman, you're you're six games in, you're zero and six, you're the worst team in the league, but you lost LeBron. There's a clear reason why it's happening. What is the logic behind firing Ty Lue now? Why do you do that? Well, see, that's the issue for me. It's firing Ty Lue now that makes no sense. I would not have been that surprised had they decided to part ways with him this summer um not even because 
he was a bad coach or or last year's failures were his fault um but he just probably wasn't the right guy to manage a rebuild and um and so moving on would have made sense in july but i don't understand and this is something that's typical of bad organizations everywhere it's it happens in minnesota it's happening in washington where you kind of come up with these like half-assed solutions that any outsider can tell you make no sense and so coming into this season with Ty Lue, knowing that he probably isn't the guy that's going to be there long term, just seemed counterproductive to me. And so does firing him five games into the season and, and appointing Larry Drew as an interim head coach. Like I'm not but sure what that accomplishes. <laughs> But they didn't even appoint him as an interim coach because they want to argue over his contract. So right now he's quote unquote the voice. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, they're still working through the contractual details. And Larry Drew told the media today, he's like, "No, I'm not there yet. Like we're working on well, it." Well, you know and- what? Good for Larry Drew. He should do that. He's going to be there for the next seven months. He deserves to get paid like a real head coach, I guess. Yeah, don't run in on a on the cheap to the worst job in the league. Like, yeah. just take your time. Let them let them make it worth your while. No, I agree with you because it, it comes down to impulsiveness from Dan Gilbert on this one, and similar to the Sarver situation in Phoenix, and and that's the link that you're kind of you know describing in terms of this decision making style. It's like yeah. when you have inflated expectations, when you don't really know basketball. Uh, when you think you do, and when you think that you know what you've created is actually something of your doing rather than just LeBron's doing, that's when you get so shocked and surprised that oh my God, we're zero at six. How did this possibly happen? I mean, the only people who thought they were going to the playoffs were Dan Gilbert and whoever he was able to brainwash, and maybe a small segment of their fan base. Yeah, right? well, everybody else from the outside. Believers were not ready to write it off entirely. Just for the record. Come on, Andrew. Not even you thought they were going to make the playoffs. So that's what I'm saying. Like, it's just a clear case of like, we thought we were going to be okay and we're not. And now what? Right? Yeah. And so from that standpoint, I don't think Ty Lue should look back. I think, again, similar to McDonough, this is the best thing that could have happened for him. Get out now before all the losses stack up and your, your record looks worse. And I think that most people will now judge Ty Lue based on what he did with the veteran team as opposed to oh, you know, he, he's got this flaw where he can't coach this rebuilding squad. And I think it'll be really interesting. Who can Cleveland get to take that job whenever they do try to fill it on a permanent basis? Because to me, that is a really, really difficult uh, spot. Not only do you have a, a bad owner, mm-hmm. uh, an inexperienced front office with, with Kobe Altman, uh, but you also have a roster that's clearly stuck in between. Like, are they coming? Are they going? You just paid Kevin Love, but is he going to get traded? You've got Kyle Korver and J.R. Smith, all these vets who are just kind of dangling. Eventually, you want to play young guys, but you, the only young guy who has any real major upside, uh, you know, unless you're a Chetty Osman believer, is, uh, you know, is there a rookie Colin Sexton, but he's not ready. I mean, yeah. he got absolutely torched he by Trey Young not, not too good. long ago. Yeah. So what do you do? Like, if you're the guy who comes in, oh, yeah, we're going to have a youth movement. Well, with what youth? Well, that's definitely an issue. Um, and the Love extension is an even more extreme example of, of the kind of thinking that I'm talking about, where everything is sort of a half-baked solution, and it doesn't totally make sense what the direction is. Um but, you know, I'm happy for Ty Lue. <laughs> and, and mainly because, you know, 
I, it's not necessarily that he would be like the worst coach imaginable to lead a rebuild, but coming off the last few years in Cleveland, I wouldn't blame him if he were just exhausted and, and too exhausted to kind of like worry about the finer points of Colin Sexton's perimeter defense and, and stuff like that. I mean, I think he can really, he can still help a veteran team um, that's going to be in a playoff race because he was great making adjustments in the playoffs over the last few years. He And he's great managing personalities. Um, so You know who should hire him today? Who? I mean, right now, the Golden State Warriors. Because now you have all this tre- treasure trove of information about, you know, LeBron's habits, what he's doing. And then plus, you can just kind of like wipe it in Dan Gilbert's face a little bit. It's like a light years move. <laughs> totally. It's like, yeah. It would we, be. We did th- we did the whole Anderson out thing. Now we're, we're doubling down with, uh, you know, Ty Lue. I mean, people used to joke about that with David Blatt. And I think you know, that might have been a, a little awkward, you know, based on his personality. But it actually, I mean, if Lou he was great, yeah. a consultant or assistant coach for the Warriors, why not do it? Yeah, I, I also feel like the Warriors have 10 different consultants working for them at any given time. Like, I don't know what Steve Nash's relationship is with them, but... Like once a month, he'll pop up giving an interview or we'll see him on the court with KD. So that's the type of role. Bring bring Ty Lu for the like once a month check-in, you know? No question. I mean, half these people are just hired so that uh, Lakeup can commission more championship rings for more employees. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so he could just flaunt his status well, as the owner even more. Oh, yeah, we had... 300 rings this year. It's basically what he's doing. And to be clear, I would pay a lot of money to just hang out with Steve Nash once a month. So if as particularly if I had a billion dollars. So more power to Joe Lacob and Steve Kerr and everybody out there. Um couple last questions here. Christopher says, "I thought there was a glaring omission from last week's podcasts." How could neither of you discuss David Stern's comments on Dell Demps? I also note that all of this emerged from a Sports Illustrated story, and last time I looked, both of you are employed by Sports Illustrated, correct? So what gives? So what do you think, Ben? Do you have any explanation? Well, my excuse is that Ballard's story was in Sports Illustrated's NBA Preview magazine, so I had read it and digested it and really thought deeply about it, (laughs) and I didn't just run straight to the little pull quote that they're going to use all over social media which was, frankly, very inflammatory from David Stern. If you guys haven't read Chris Ballard's excellent uh, you know, profile or, or tag-along story with David Stern, go do it because it really is Stern distilled to his most petty, his most fearsome, his most brilliant. I mean, he really comes through on the, on the pages uh, you know, when you read this thing. To me, his quotes about Dell Demps were pretty shocking. I mean, I, I don't necessarily disagree with what he said, but should he have said it? Um, I don't know. I appreciated it. <laughs> I, I appreciated that in a long story about Stern, we would get one trademark David Stern moment where he, he sees the line and he doesn't go that far past it, but he definitely crossed the line with that. And, uh, you know, look, he's he wasn't wrong. Del Demps has done a pretty rough job down in New Orleans, and um, I thought people were a little more protective of Demps and the Pelicans than they needed to be. Um, but David Stern is not very popular on Twitter and, and hasn't been for the last five or six years. 
I kind of love him though as just sort of uh, an authentic character. And I, what I like most about him is that almost every criticism of David Stern is true, and every nice thing that someone says about David Stern and his legacy is also true. Um, and there aren't many people like that. I think it also reminded me that that sort of non-trade to the Lakers was a real pivotal moment in terms of like how the league was covered because immediately the reports came out and all of the initial wave of reports painted Stern as the bad guy, right? He was the one who's stepping in and, and blocking this trade. And you've got all these different people saying, oh, the commissioner shouldn't be doing this. And obviously it was an awkward uh, position for him to be in. Yeah, But it was the rare moment where the league office got completely outflanked on the reporting side of it. And they never really got their side out of the story out until later. So by the time Stern ever kind of weighed in, I don't know if it was at the next all-star weekend or, or whenever he sort of addressed it, um, the story had already been written that he had screwed it up. And I think it's possible that his version of events is accurate, right? Like if you want to dig into the nitty gritty, basically he's saying like, look, I just never approved the trade. They thought it was done and they were just trying to sort of force it through and then they immediately ran to the media and whined that, you know, I, I held it up when, in fact, he was just doing his job as sort of the controlling owner in that situation, right? Yeah. I think it's possible that that version that he's telling is accurate. But since the the history already got written five years ago by the people who were really angry at him, and then the Lakers are kind of in this as sort of the, the loudest voice in every, you know, basketball room, yeah. right? Uh, he got shot it down a little bit. And you know, so from that standpoint, I, I get him wanting to correct the record, but the personal attack on Dell, and especially saying like he's going to lose AD, I mean, that is just vindictive, right? Like, isn't, <laughs> isn't that a little bit more than just barely across the line, Andrew? I, you know, is it? Are we really so sensitive now that we can't talk openly about what's gone on down there and what is likely that's, to happen down there that's something that loudmouth podcasters like you and i say and then sometimes we apologize for a week later is that really something an ex uh commissioner should be saying like i almost view that role aren't you almost like a president and you know guys like george that's hw fair. and george w and barack obama like they have pretty carefully stuck to the high road whenever possible. And this was not that. This was <laughs> the Pelicans going high and David Stern going low, to borrow a Michelle Obama quote. Yeah, well, that's fair, except that what made David Stern so entertaining and ridiculous over the years was that he was always the guy who was willing to get his hands dirty and kind of take things a, a step or two too far. Remember during the lockout where he, to make a point, Asked Jim Rome if he beat his wife. Oof! Yeah, I, I do. I do remember that. It's, just, <laughs> it's a rhetorical <laughs> argument where you're like stuck without an answer you can make. Yes, but yeah. exactly. I mean, Stern has never been shy about being the asshole, and uh, and I appreciate his commitment to staying on brand. Let's put it that way. And um, I think the one thing hearing you discuss this reminded me that really. Stern's legacy would be so much less complicated if he had just let New Orleans move to Oklahoma City and moved that franchise to OKC and kept the, the Sonics in Seattle. I think that would have been better for the league. And um, Stern, for whatever reason, was unwilling to let the NBA die in that New Orleans market. And granted, this was coming off Katrina, so there was all kinds of... Uh, 
incentive and and it, like it it mattered to the league to to not abandon that market. Um, but it just it isn't clear that that city loves basketball that much, and uh, so it would have been sort of a two step way to avoid uh, some of the stuff that has really come to color our memories of Stern. You know, one other thing. This is unrelated to that, but is there a way for the NBA to? I don't know, memorialize or to honor David Stern in kind of a real tangible way, like the Larry O'Brien trophy, right? Everybody now calls it the Larry. We're trying to get the Larry, right? And yeah. that, you know, winds up being kind of a big deal. Should the NBA name an award or a trophy or something like really, truly valuable about Stern, given that he oversaw basically like the period of the largest growth of the league and, so, uh, you know, the, the spread and the ambition of what they were trying to become as an organization? Like, should they do something like that? Or should they put like a statue on, you know, Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue? I mean, what do they do? They should. And I don't think that there's much of an impulse to do something like that right now because David Stern made a lot of enemies over the final 10 years of his tenure. But, uh, but I, like, to me, you're alluding to some points that are pretty important. Like, you, people look at the NBA as this bastion of free expression and liberalism. And a lot of that happened under Stern's watch. And granted, he like he did stuff like the dress code that sort of complicates that. But a lot of what Stern was doing is now being realized today. And particularly one of the things that I found is when I did that big international story last year, so many people would talk about how important Stern was to insisting that the NBA invest globally and and insisting that they could grow the game in China and in Africa and sort of leading that charge all of which oh, yeah. like silver now gets a lot of credit for rightfully so but it all started with Stern and and I think point blank there's no open floor globe without David Stern Exactly exactly you know he was sitting down with Boris Stankovic who was the head of FIBA in like the late 80s and uh all that stuff started 30 years ago with Stern. And so at some point it would be cool to recognize that, but I think there might be feelings around the league and around the media that are still a little bit too raw to sort of make that move with Stern. But I mean, he's a legend. Yeah. Well, that's when, you know, Adam has to step up and just do it. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we can get some sort of an international tournament or, you know, one of these global games things that can, you know, wind up having a trophy and maybe pay homage to uh, you know Stern's globalism that you've described uh, that way. I mean, they've already got the Finals uh, trophy taken care of. The Finals MVP trophy has a good name. The MVP trophy has a pretty good name. So there, there's not a lot of other really weighty <laughs> things. Uh, but they got to figure out something to honor this. Yeah. What, what what's going to have to happen is you and I are going to have to invent an award and get that award included at the year end ceremony for the NBA. And then we could start lobbying for David Stern to have it named after him. Well, some people wanted that playoff MVP, right? Like not just the finals MVP. Yeah. Maybe you do the sure. David J. Stern <laughs> playoff MVP award. That can work. Um, but on that note, as we've descended into gibberish here at the end, Ben, I will talk to you later in the week. Our next episode will run Thursday instead of Friday because of some scheduling concerns. Everything revolves around the Lakers these days. Uh, but until then, uh, I'll talk to you, man. Andrew, great conversations today on a wide variety of topics. You know why we were able to have that talk? Because of the listeners emailing openfloormail 
at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com with great questions all week long. We really love it. Hey, don't forget, go to Apple Podcasts, find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get there, it will say rate and review, scroll down, tap five stars. Andrew, we are up above like 1.37 thousand reviews, which is like 1,300. Pretty darn good. If I do say it so myself, join the mix, guys. Please give us those five-star reviews. We really appreciate it. It helps us spread the word. Hey, Andrew, we're also on the theworldfamousradio.com, and I will talk to you later this week. Who can forget radio.com? All right, man. Talk to you soon. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.